Hello and welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the third Sunday in Lent, March 12th, 2023. Jesus is in Samaria at a well when he asks a woman for a drink. What seems on the surface like a simple request for hospitality unfolds into a veritable proposal of love. Surveying the Old Testament instances of a man and a woman at a well uncovers the nuptial overtones of our gospel, and a look at the story of Jacob and Rachel's first meeting displays a manly strength that Jesus himself will show upon the cross. Finally, we'll employ our first reading for a telling connection with the Eucharist, one which reminds us of the intense love of God and his own longing for our love. Welcome back to Sunday Dive. Today we are exploring readings from the Gospel of John. It's always exciting when we get some readings from the Gospel of John um, because um, we don't have a whole lectionary year dedicated to him. And typically we read him during uh, during the Lenten season, so it's not too surprising that we have him today. Our readings are from John chapter 4, verses 5 through 42. It's a long Gospel reading, and and naturally there's a there's a shorter version, but I never do that. Why settle for less when you can have more, as I always like to say. So our story is the famed story of the woman at the well. And there is a lot here for us to explore. And so we're just going to dive right into it, uh, beginning together as usual by reading our gospel, which is from John chapter five, excuse me, John chapter four, verse five. Through 42. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sakar, near the village, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was with his journey, sat down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. This you said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such the Father seeks to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will show us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but none said, what do you wish? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into the city and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples besought him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him food? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? I tell you, lift up your eyes and see how the fields are already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of your words that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. John chapter four, gosh, I can't say the word four. John chapter four, verses five through 42. Again, the famous story of the woman at the well. When St. John gives us the scene, the location, the setting for our story, he immediately gives us a theme. Why do I say this? Because we have a man, we have a woman, and we have a well. And many, many times in scripture, when you have those three things, man, woman, well, you get something, something else in the equation, like this plus that plus that equals, and that thing that it equals is nuptiality. So when John sets the scene for us, He's also setting the theme, a theme which is a nuptial theme. So uh, we can go to Exodus chapter 2, for example, verses 15 through 21. We get the story of Moses meeting his wife. Where does he meet his wife? At a well. If we go to Genesis chapter 24, verses 14 through 19, we read about um, the servant going to fetch a wife for Isaac where does he find Isaac's future wife? At a well. And then if we go just a few chapters later to Genesis 29 verses 1 through 9, we get the story of Jacob meeting his wife. And by now you know where Jacob met his wife. Yes, if you guessed well at a well, you are correct. So we have Jesus and we have woman and we have well. And for this, we have nuptiality. Jesus goes to the well 
to meet a woman. This would have been a common thing to do. As you see this theme unfolding of, of men going to wells to find women, this was like where you would go to find a future wife, clearly from the, 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 the examples that we've laid out. But why is that the reason? Well, because gathering water, fetching water was a woman's task. And so if you wanted to go to the place where the women were gathered, you would go to the well. I said that Jesus comes to the well to meet a woman, a common thing for men to do. So it already kind of has like a, a bit of a romantic connotation to it. But John also makes it clear that Jesus in many ways goes to the well to meet a particular woman. Why do I say that? Because John tells us that the time of day is the sixth hour, which is about noon. This was not the time of day that you would typically go to meet a woman at a well. Why? Because women would fetch water in the cooler parts of the day, typically first thing in the morning. So it's odd that this woman is coming at the noontime in the heat of the day. Women would also gather at the same time for the sake of socializing. So they would usually gather at the well in the morning. They would usually gather at the well together. Um, We're going to see in a moment why that is, because you would need more than one person there to lift off the rock for the well. And then this also had like a, a social aspect to it. So it tells us that the woman, if she shows up in the heat of the day, is intentionally trying to go to the well when she's not going to meet anyone else that's there. But then on this particular day, she shows up at the well and it's like, of course, who's there? This this guy. But this guy that's going to change your life, right? Jesus. And so Jesus goes to the well, not just to meet any woman. He goes to the well to meet a particular woman. Why might this woman be going out of her way to fetch water in the heat of the day in order to avoid other people. Well, if we jump ahead in our text, Jesus ends up telling us by telling her and John recording it that she has been divorced many, many times. It's likely that she is a bit of an outcast. All right. Now, our Lord is also coming. He's coming to the well and waiting for the woman for hospitality. All right. Um, he he needs he needs her assistance in order to receive a drink. As she herself points out, you don't have a bucket. The well is deep, and so our Lord needs the hospitality of another in order to be given that drink, which he requests in verse seven. So he's coming to have his thirst quenched, and he's coming to meet a woman and a particular woman. And it's interesting because all throughout John's gospel, the theme of drinking has a nuptial connotation to it as well. Um, we see our Lord satisfy the thirst of man at the wedding feast of Cana, his first miracle, right? Then we're also going to see him cry out that he is thirsty upon the cross. And the greatest saints and spiritual masters note that it appears that our Lord is not just crying out for a mere physical drink, but he's crying out for, for his, uh, for a particular kind of thirst to be quenched. Mother Teresa's spirituality 
really centers on this idea of Jesus being thirsty. So in every um, convent chapel for the missionaries of charity, her order that she founded, you can find a crucifix near which is painted upon the wall two words, I thirst. And Mother Teresa directed that this be the case in all of her convent chapels because she wanted her sisters to understand that Jesus thirsts and his thirst is unique and only a particular thing can satisfy it. And that is the love of you and I. Jesus thirsts for our soul, for our love, for our affection. And so right off the bat at verse seven, when Jesus says, give me a drink, obviously the woman, just like you and I would, interprets this as, you know, he's thirsty. He wants something to drink, but there is something deeper going on here. We're going to see Jesus trying to woo this woman back to himself and arguably very successfully doing so. But it's not as if, uh, it's not as if Jesus is just wanting wanting to give her his love that she might receive his love, though that is going on. It's very much the case that Jesus wants to receive her love. And this is a beautiful thing for us to recognize that Jesus longs for us. He's not just the omnipotent, omniscient, distant God that like doles out his love upon us as a, as like, um, I don't know, like a little dribbler of water, that we can go to or else we'll die or like an IV or something like that. And, and, and our relationship with him, with him is just this transactional thing where so long as we stay plugged into the IV of his love, we'll stay alive. No, love is, love is reciprocity. And so Jesus loves to love us and Jesus desperately wants to be loved by us. And so he goes to Samaria, which is not a typical place that a Jewish man would find himself. We'll get into that later. He goes to a well in the middle of the day because he wants to encounter a particular woman. And he speaks to her, something unusual, okay? Um, it's unusual for, for two reasons. First of all, men did not usually address women who were not their kin or were not known by them. In other words, they wouldn't usually address strangers, okay? It's also odd that Jesus addresses her because she is Samaritan. She herself points this out. How is it that you, a Jew, ask of a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? So Jesus is already from the beginning being a little bit edgy here. If you'll allow me, it's almost like he's being flirtatious uh, by asking her for a drink. And when I say that, I want to get very clear about what I mean here, because there's an abundance of theories of late that have been made popular by an author named Dan Brown. I know these these are getting older, but the the ideas are still there that Jesus, um, you know, he was very human and he was carnal and his his carnal desires could not be could not be put away. And so he surely had, he surely took for himself a wife and the, the prevailing theory at the time that we currently find ourselves is that Mary Magdalene was his wife, right? So as we move through this podcast episode together and I draw on over and over again, the, the nuptial undertones that are present in our gospel, I want to make it clear that when I talk about nuptiality, I'm not talking about sexuality. 
because the love that God has is in many ways in and of itself a nuptial love without being a sexual love. Okay. And I want to make this very clear. Um, I also want to back up a little bit and say that all throughout the Old Testament, God gives us an image of himself as, as, as a lover and as a husband. So just a quick example at Isaiah 54, five, we read your husband is your maker. And then all throughout the old Testament, when we read about the unfaithfulness of the Israelite people, the unfaithfulness of the Jewish people, it's very common for that unfaithfulness to be compared to the unfaithfulness of a, of a bride, of a wife. So all throughout the Old Testament, the scriptures and God himself through the scriptures gives us a nuptial kind of image of himself, God as husband. And I also want to take a moment here to point out um, something that's important for us to recognize that um, when we when we consider the love of God, it's not as if God in his throne in heaven said to himself, hmm, how shall I show the human race that I love them? Like what sort of image should I draw on to illustrate my love? And then posing this question, you know, he, he puts his, his, his hand uh, uh, over his eyes so that he can peer down on earth and search the earth. And oh, there, there's a perfect image for my love. The love between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, nuptial love. That, that, that's the image that I'll use to show the human race how much I love them. No, 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 no. That's not how it worked. It was quite the opposite. Let's go back to the very beginning of creation. And God sitting upon his throne said to himself, what can I create that will illustrate to the human race how much I love them? That's the quote unquote question that God poses to himself. And the answer to that question is nuptial love. God said, I'm going to create man in my image and I'm going to create them male and female. And in creating them male and female, I'm going to create this particular kind of human love, a nuptial love. And this nuptial love is going to be an image of my love for humanity. That's what God did. So we need to understand that when we read about Jesus um, having nuptial desires for the people that he encounters in scripture, or even having a nuptial desire for each and every one of us, it's not in the way that, you know, the Greek gods are just as, um, as, as carnal as humans are, and they have to go around having sexual relations with whomever they can find because they're just... They're just as, as down and dirty as, as any other creature. No, no, no. In fact, the whole reason that, that the evil one um, puts sexuality in such a uncomfortable light for many of us is because he wants to taint it. He wants to taint that image that shows us the tremendous love 
that God has for us. Okay, so that was a long-winded way of saying, when I, when I talk about God's nuptial love, I'm not talking about sexuality. Um, we can look, for example, at the love that uh, was had between Our Lady and St. Joseph, who we know were both chaste. And yet, can you think of a man and a woman, a husband and a wife who loved one another more perfectly than Our Lady and St. Joseph did? No. And so you have the, the beautiful image of their nuptial love that does not require sexuality to express it. Now, God is perfectly content that nuptial love be expressed in sexuality. But again, we, we need to make it very clear if we talk about God's nuptial love that we're not conflating it with sexuality, okay? So God created marriage for the purpose of illustrating his own love for humanity. When we look at our, our, our gospel reading here, I, I gave you uh, a few stories from the Old Testament that uh, are these nuptial encounters taking place at a well, Exodus 2, Genesis 24, Genesis 29. There's, there's one example in particular, which is that last example, Genesis 29, that we get some clear parallels going on here. And it even seems to explain the, the question that uh, the woman here at the well poses to Jesus when he says, um, I can give you living water. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? So what, what is going on here? Let's go to Genesis 29 together, verse 1 and following, and read this interaction, this, this first meeting, this love at first sight between Jacob and his future wife, Genesis 29, 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field and lo, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place upon the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the animals to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. Now, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. And then we almost get like a, a happily ever after, after that. But why, why do I draw on that for an explanation for our story here in particular? In particular, the woman's response to Jesus, are you greater than Jacob? Well, first of all, at Genesis 29.1, we get an interesting but subtle detail on how wells were run in the ancient world. So 
it was not uncommon for a large rock, as is alluded to in Genesis 29, to be rolled over the mouth of a well. And this would serve as like security for the well. So just as in our own day and age, our water source, water purification um, systems and centers have lots of security and surveillance around them so as to prevent the poison of our water source. So in the ancient days, there was a concern about this, of a vandalization of the well, of a, a tainting of the well. And so in ancient days, as a form of security, they would put a big, a big rock over the mouth of the well so that it would take multiple men to roll back the rock. And hopefully you wouldn't have to worry at least about one uh, lone crazy man poisoning the well, okay? Now, it's interesting because what we see here, if you read it subtly at Genesis 29, is that when Jacob sees Rachel, he rolls back the stone himself. It's, he gets this burst of manly adrenaline <laughs> and just has to provide water for her. And so in his strength and his manly adrenaline and desire to impress her, he rolls back the stone as well. It's interesting too, because we can go to an ancient Jewish text called the Targums, the Targums are an Aramaic translation of the scriptures, but they also have a little bit of biblical commentary in them. In the Targums, when you read this story, it actually says, it specifically says that Jacob rolled back the stone with one arm, okay? Mm. And so in this miraculous sort of feat in which Jacob amazingly is able to provide Rachel with a drink of water. And so like seals the deal, right? I mean, like after that moment, he just straight up like kisses her and is like, you're mine. And apparently she's like, yeah. Jesus himself is, is kind of, is kind of alluding to being able to do the same thing. If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. But she says, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? In other words, all right, you ask me for a drink. And then you tell me I should ask you for a drink. How the heck are you going to give me a drink? You don't even have a bucket to draw from. And are you greater than Jacob who rolled away the stone from the mouth of the well with one arm and so wooed his wife to himself? And you know what the subtle answer is to this. Jesus is like, yes, <laughs> yes, I am. So how does he respond? Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let's talk about this, this, this phrase living water here. Okay. What does it mean? It simply means running water. Okay. So living water in the ancient world is, is in contrast to say the water in a pond or the water in a lake. Living water is water from a spring it's water from a river. It's water that's flowing, okay? Running water, flowing water. Interestingly enough, we get when we when we if we're if we put ourselves in the shoes of an ancient Jew, a first century Jew, and you're talking about living water, probably one of the first things that we'd think of actually 
are these things that were all over the ancient uh, ancient Palestine in Jewish communities, and they were all over, especially the Jerusalem Temple, nearby the Jerusalem Temple. These are things called mikvah. Okay, mikvah were um, baths for ritual washings, for ritual bathings, and these mikvah, these baths had specific rules associated with them. For example, they could only be filled with living water. Now, there were different interpretations of this. Some interpreted that to mean that the mikvah had to be filled with water that was brought from a living water source, a running water source. Others uh, interpreted these rules more uh, stringently and said, no, the water in the mikvah has to actually be running, has to be like stirred up, okay, or flowing, all right? Nonetheless, when Jesus here and John explicating this this section of scripture for us, when Jesus says, um, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We get an image of this living water, of this mikvah. And when we talk about ritual washings, we should note that the word in Greek that was used for washings and even ritual washings is a word that we're actually very familiar with. In Greek, it's baptizo, okay? So our Lord is making subtle allusions to providing us with living water that indeed will spring up into a well of eternal life. And what is that living water? Indeed, it's the waters of baptism. So just as um, just as Jacob, through his like almost miraculous power and might, was able to provide this, this water that satisfied the thirst of Rachel, so Jesus is going to as well. And he's going to do that through the waters of baptism. We're also going to see a way in which he's going to do that through the waters of uh, the, the quote-unquote waters, I should I should rather say, through the drink of the Eucharist. We'll come back to that. I want to I want to draw on another detail here that's fascinating. It's um, it's not actually in our gospel because our gospel starts at verse five. But if we go to just the the verse just previous to verse five, verse four, we read that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, this is not a logistical um, assertion. Why do I say that? Because John would have been very aware, as well as the rest of the disciples, that Jesus did not was not logistically required to pass through Samaria. In fact, the typical routes that Jews took from north to south, and let's do a little bit of geography here to further explain. Jesus spends most of his life in the north of, of Palestine in a place called Galilee, in a region called Galilee, okay? He would periodically travel down to the region of Judea, which contained the capital city of Jerusalem, in order to worship. In between Judea and Galilee was another region called Samaria, okay? So a lot of Galilean Jews traveled quite regularly from the north down to the south of Judea for religious reasons, for economical reasons, business reasons, et cetera, et cetera. They had ways of getting down to the South without passing through the region of Samaria. One of those, one of the most common ways is that they would actually cross, they would go east, cross over the Jordan River, 
and then travel on the east side of the Jordan River till they got to the area of Jericho. And then they would cross the Jordan River and pass through Jericho into the land of Judea. This is why if you are an astute reader of the Gospels, you find out that Jesus is frequently in Jericho. He's frequently in Jericho because he's following the typical route of a Jewish man traveling from the north to the south. Suffice it to say that when John says Jesus had to pass through Samaria, he's not making a logistical statement. What is he saying that? It appears that what John is saying is that Jesus was compelled to go to Samaria. Why was Jesus compelled to go to Samaria? He had a woman he wanted to meet. And he had a particular woman he wanted to meet. But we can also argue that the, the image of the woman, the individual, I should rather say, of this woman is, is one which is can be expanded to include her, her entire people. Okay. And in, in other words, she, the woman at the well, she is an image and a symbol of her entire community, the Samaritans. So let's back up here and do a little bit of history to understand who the Samaritan people were, why they were so disliked, and why Jesus may have been going out of his way, literally in a way, going out of his way in order to pass through Samaria. So Jewish Samaritan tensions in a way begin as early as the divided kingdom. So the divided kingdom occurs under the son of Solomon, who is Rehoboam. So under David and under Solomon, you had all the 12 tribes of Israel ruled together in union under one king. When Rehoboam comes on the scene, he upsets the 10 northern tribes and the 10 northern tribes secede from the, the kingdom and they create their own kingdom and they elect their own monarch. And this is the period that scholars refer to as the divided kingdom. Now, we may be familiar with the fact that after the divided kingdom, the Assyrian nation comes in, invades the northern uh, territories and the northern tribes and takes those peoples off into exile. What the Assyrian king does is he leaves a remnant of the Israelite people in the north, and then he sends other foreigners to colonize that region. This was a typical practice at the time. And even uh, in closer history, we see this practice. So, for example, when the king of England um, conquered, if you will, or, or took possession of the lands of the United States on the East Coast, what did he do? He sent colonists, his own subjects, to settle the area. And he did that for the reason of maintaining control of that land. That is essentially why monarchs or leaders of countries, nations, will colonize a place. They'll send people to that region in order to maintain control of the land. So the king of Assyria left a remnant of the Israelite people, the northerners, in the region of Samaria, and then he sent um, peoples to colonize that area. We can read about this actually at 2 Kings 17. And interestingly enough, at 2 Kings 17, we're told that the king of Assyria sent five groups of people to colonize the area of Samaria. Keep that in mind in the back of your head. Now, what this ended up causing was kind of a hybrid people and a hybrid religion. Why do I say that? Well, the Samaritans 
or the Northern Israelites, if you want to say that, intermarried with the colonists and they became quote unquote mixed blood. And unfortunately, in the process of being colonized and intermarried into these foreign nations, they also begin kind of assuming some of the religious pagan practices of the peoples. So they had like mixed blood and a hybrid religion. And for this reason, the Jewish people really, really disliked them. You can even say they hated the Samaritans. And we also want to note that it's during the period of the divided kingdom where we move from calling the chosen people Israelites and referring to them as Jews. Why is that? Well, because the Northerners are like assumed into, assimilated, if you will, into other cultures. And the Southerners, who are of the tribe of Judah, maintain their identity. And so Jewish refers to descendants of the tribe of Judah, okay? Now, when we talk about this woman as a representative of her people, we note that when Jesus says to her, call your husband, she responds, I have no husband. And he says, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. What is going on here? Well, again, to fully appreciate this, let's go back to a section in scripture, 2 Samuel 5, which is in the reign of King David. And at 2 Samuel 5, the people come to David and they say to him, we want to make a covenant with you. You are our bone and flesh. And the son of the, the David, and then passed down through the son of David, David and his sons create a covenant with the people, a covenant that makes them fam- family. It creates familial bonds. And interestingly enough, the language of the covenant, you are our bone and flesh, takes us back to Genesis and the particular covenant that Adam made with Eve, one which was a nuptial covenant, okay? When we have the divided kingdom, we have a rupture in that covenant that essentially looks like a divorce, okay? So when Jesus comes on the scene, He's he's concerned with this woman in particular. We're gonna we're gonna come back to we're gonna shift back to her story momentarily. But he's also concerned with the people in general. See, he is the son of David who has come to call the tribes back to himself, to gather those who have been scattered, and to reestablish God's covenant with his people. And where the people divorced themselves in a way from the son of David, who is, who was Rehoboam at the time, Jesus is going to come on the scene and he's going to try to woo those people, those, those Northerners back to himself. All right. And so the woman, his encounter with her is truly an encounter person to person. And yet at the same time, if we explicate this, this narrative with the historical backdrop in mind, in a broader theological lens, we discover that Jesus is is serving as a, a corporate image of the son of David, the Davidic monarchy. And the woman is serving as this, this corporate image of the Northern tribes. And Jesus is saying, I love you and I want you back for myself. This is amazing and, and incredibly profound. I will also say that 
if we continue reading in 2 Kings 17, so 2 Kings 17, 24 tells us the five peoples that the Assyrian kings sent to settle, to colonize this land. If we continue reading in that section of scripture, we are told the gods, we're given a list of the gods that those five nations, those five foreign peoples had, and that they brought with them into the region that they settled. Now, when we read this language in 2 Kings 17, we do not get the word Baal, B-A-A-L. However, we very much get the notion of Baal. And what is the, the broader notion of Baal? Well, Baal is that, that foreign pagan god that crops up over and over again in the Old Testament in competition with the true God of Israel, which is Yahweh, okay? And so when in 2 Kings 17, we're outlined, we're given a list of the foreign gods that are brought into the land, we can call to mind this notion of Baal, that God who is in competition with the true God of Israel. And what's interesting is that that word Baal, again, you won't actually find it in Hebrew. I want to be very clear about that. It's not in Hebrew at 2 Kings 17, but the broader notion is there. And that word Baal in Hebrew, not only can it be translated God or Lord or master, but it can even, and it periodically is translated husband. Okay. And so when Jesus says to her, you have had five husbands, He's looking at this woman who is a corporate image of the Northern tribes and saying, you have had five husbands as in five foreign nations that have come in and intermarried with you and, and oppressed you and, and, and taken you off the, the path. But you have also had these, these foreign gods who are like com- competition to the God of Israel. They are like false husbands. Remember what we read from Isaiah? Your husband is your maker. Okay, so so Jesus is setting himself up in competition with those those false lords, those false masters, those, those false husbands. And he's setting himself up in competition in a way um, to show himself to be a much greater lover, uh, a much more gentle God, a much more attentive man. And miraculously, it seems that his response to the woman on an individual level brings this about. You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. Later on, we're going to discover that this is the linchpin for her. This is what's going to change everything. Him being able to tell her her past actually makes her fall in love with him. How can that be? First of all, it shows Jesus as a man and as a God who knows everything about her. And does not every human being that has ever existed simply want somebody in their life that knows everything about them. That's the, that's the desire of every, every man, woman, and even a child, whether they realize it or not, every husband, every wife, we all just want somebody 
who knows everything about us. And, and the thing that makes God different from like Satan, for example, you see, when, when Satan knows things about us, especially if they're things that we would rather he not know and rather that others not know, he wants to, he wants to you know, spread them from the rooftops in order to introduce shame into our lives. And so the things that the devil knows about us, they enslave us and ensnare us and, and cause us shame. But God, this is what we discover mysteriously in the story of this woman. God, when he knows everything about us, it frees us. For God to know everything about you is to be unburdened. Because when God knows everything about us, he responds to it in the same way unequivocally every time. He responds with love, with affection, with understanding, with the eyes that tell us we are known and loved. Because is that not the fear that we have about being known, right? Though we all want to be known, we're also afraid to be known because being known might cause rejection. But when Jesus Christ knows you, and knows everything about you, it, it creates quite the opposite effect in him. He has no desire to reject us. In fact, those things that he knows about us, especially our weaknesses, they're like a magnet that draw him to us. It, it just, he's drawn to our poverty and to our needs. This is why mysteriously, when Jesus drops this bomb on the conversation, you have had five husbands and he whom you now have is not your husband. That introduces no shame into the conversation. Do you notice this? Quite the opposite. She's unburdened and freed. This is the beauty of being known by God. And this is even the beauty of the sacrament of reconciliation, of confession. This is how people can leave the confessional and just be so free and unburdened because they're able to to. to to show themselves to the priest who's acting in the person of Jesus Christ and receive in response love. And the only proper response uh, to a human being is love. And Jesus is the only one who can properly give that and fill us and, and know us in, in all of our, our weaknesses and our failures and love us. I also want to point out um, uh, a, a little detail that we might not be aware of. Sometimes when we read this gospel, we have a tendency to believe that this woman is kind of a bit of a player or something of the like, that she has managed to have five husbands and is with a man right now who is not currently her husband. Now, I, I want to point out the fact that um, a woman could go to a court of law in first century Judaism and say, I need a divorce from my husband and request that the court compel her husband to file for a divorce. But this is the only way that she could procure a divorce. In other words, a woman could not divorce her husband. Only the husband could divorce the wife. So again, yes, there were cases in which a woman could go to a Jewish court of law and request that the court compel the husband for her sake to initiate a divorce. But at the end of the day, in Jewish culture, only a man can divorce a wife. What does this mean? 
This means that it's highly likely that this woman has not just left all five of her husbands and is kind of like the harlot. I'm not going to, I'm not going to totally exclude that possibility. However, I believe it's more likely and I believe that it could be very helpful, at least for a spiritual reading of our text, to understand that it's highly likely that this woman has been left by five different men. And can you imagine the state of her heart if she has been left successively by five different husbands? It's probably in tatters. This is the woman that Jesus seeks out when he must travel through Samaria, when he goes to the well in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day. This is the woman that he seeks out. This is the woman that he wants to find and he wants to woo to himself. He wants to find the poorest among us. And so if you're in a state in life when you feel like your heart can't be turned to any more shreds than it already is. That's when you know that Jesus is going to be in your corner. You're going to crest that hill on your way to the well, trying to quench your thirst. And a silhouette of a man is going to be there. And he's the one that's going to quench your thirst. He's the one that's going to answer all of your questions. He's the one who's going to put your heart back together and love you in a way that no one else possibly could. This is our God. And it's amazing. And it's outrageous. This man who goes to the well, asks a woman for water. When you don't do that, he's edgy. He's flirty and he's in love with each and every one of us. How do we respond to that? Friends, this Lenten season is a time to ask ourselves those questions. How am I responding to the love of Jesus Christ? Am I responding in a way that I ought to? Am I, am I re- uh, reciprocating this love? As I've said many times on the podcast, Jesus Christ is is the object of more un, unrequited love than any other man who's ever lived. But how can we say no to a love so perfect, a love so, so free, a love that unburdens us? I think our, our scripture readings give us a, a glimpse into how we, how we practice this reciprocal love. And it, it fleshes out for us even further nuptial overtones and undertones that we find in our gospel here. And uh, honestly, I, I'm not sure if you can tell, but we're already at the 50 minute mark and I have so much more that I could talk about. And so, you know, you could, I could do like a two hour talk, probably longer on this gospel reading. So I'm having to be specific about what I, what I talk about, but but I don't want to close out our, our episode today without bringing in the, the fascinating illusions that our first reading gives us, the fascinating illusions that the church herself gives us by coupling our reading from John 4 with a reading from Exodus 17. What is the reading from Exodus 17? The reading from Exodus 17 is the people murmuring against Moses because they are thirsty. Now, just previous to this, they were murmuring, murmuring against Moses because they're hungry. And what what does God do? How does he respond? He gives them manna. He rains down bread from heaven. This is the tenderness of our God. 
But at Exodus 17, now they're complaining of thirst. And so what does God do? The Lord says to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with, some of, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand the rod with which you struck the Nile. Behold, I will stand before, before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So how does God respond to the complaint of thirst that the people um, address to him? He tells Moses to take his miraculous staff, his rod, and to go to this particular rock and to strike the rock. And out of the rock, God promises, water will flow. Now, what is the fascinating parallel here with our reading? Well, obviously, there's thirst. There's a clear parallel of thirst and the quenching of thirst. St. Paul actually provides the key for us. So if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 and following, particularly verse 4, we read, I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same supernatural food and all drank the same supernatural drink for they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. So St. Paul reads uh, Exodus, our first reading, right? And he sees Moses striking the rock and outflowing water. And he sees here the image of Jesus. Why does he see the image of Jesus? Because Jesus upon the cross is struck. And when he is struck, out flows drink. What is the drink that flows out? The blood and water from his side. And why do we say out flows drink? Because this is the same precious drink that he gave to us just hours before in the upper room at the last supper when he took the chalice and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And every thirst that we have is quenched by the blood of Jesus Christ that we receive in the Eucharist. Why do I say that? It's not just a drink, even though it is, because our Lord just loves to layer meaning upon meaning upon meaning upon meaning. But that precious blood that we receive in Holy Communion is that drink that satisfies all thirsts, because it is Jesus Christ himself who gives himself body, blood, soul, and divinity to us in a covenantal act. When Jesus at the Last Supper took the chalice in his hands, he said, this is the kaina diatheke in my blood. In Greek, that means the new covenant. A new covenant that was foretold by the prophets of old, that like Jeremiah 31, 31. And it's the most perfect covenant, a covenant that will culminate all covenants, so perfect that no other covenant can come after it because it, it, it can't be any more perfect than this covenant, this new covenant. Why is this new covenant so perfect? And why is it, why is it the drink that quenches all thirsts? Because if a covenant is an exchange of persons, 
in the Eucharist itself, we have Jesus giving himself to us perfectly, tremendously, fully. And and why do I go to the Eucharist as this means of reciprocity? Because if we receive him back reverently, lovingly, affectionately, um, we we reciprocate his love. And as, as a church, as an American church, as we enter into this, this time of Eucharistic revival, Eucharistic renewal, we want to keep this in mind that Jesus, when we approach him in Holy Communion, gives his whole self to us in order to quench our thirst. And, and the means by which he he was able to quench our thirst. He is able to quench our thirst is a means that, that was, that was, that took, took much strength, right? He had to give himself to us upon the cross. So just as Jacob showed forth his tremendous strength by, 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 by tearing open the well in order to quench the thirst of Rachel. So Jesus upon the cross shows his tremendous strength being pierced in the side, just as the rock was in Exodus so that out could flow that drink, which is his very self, and it would quench all thirsts. The only desire of every human that's ever lived is to be perfectly known and perfectly received and perfectly loved. And in that little white host, we have that. And so as we move through the Lenten season, we might consider revisiting John 4 and revisiting the tremendous love that Jesus displays, not just for this woman, not just for the Samaritan people, but for each and every individual, for you and I, and ask ourselves, how am I responding to that? How am I reciprocating that? Consider increasing your mass attendance. You know, if receiving Holy Communion reverently is a source of love and affection for Jesus Christ, why not do it more than once a week? Why not do it every day? Why not give the Lord that pleasure? Why not meditate on the fact that, yes, you, you can bring him that much joy and satisfaction. So why should you rob him of that? Go to him more often, more often in prayer, more often in in Holy Communion because you satisfy his own thirst in a way that no one else can. I'm going to say that I'm going to say that again. You satisfy his thirst in a way that no one else can. Yes, the story ends by the woman leaving her jar and heading into the village and practically converting the whole place. Why does she leave her jar? She's no longer thirsty. And so it ends with her thirst being quenched. But how does it also end? The disciples come to Jesus and they're trying to get him to eat. And he says, I have food that you do not know about. Who just satisfied Jesus's needs? The woman did. See, the whole story starts by him uttering those beautiful four words. Give me a drink. This Lent in all of your life, if you look him in the eyes, he will utter those four words as well. Give me a drink and you will discover how loved you are when you realize that you, you satisfy the desires of our Lord's heart in a way that no one 
else can. 